You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Christopher Moore is the winner of the Quill Award and the author of the best-selling novels that include A Dirty Job and his latest, the sequel to 1995's Blood-Sucking Fiends, You Suck. We're speaking with him here at Capitola Book Cafe. He's here in celebration of Valentine's Day because he has this love story that spills more blood than the average gangland saga. Uh, he's looking for it. He can't seem to find okay, it anywhere. I'm, I'm good. Go ahead. <laughs> Chris, I want to talk to you about uh, your special editions of your books because you do a lot of these and it's an, and you come up and down this coast here and you tour and it, it's a really interesting way of connecting with readers. Are these your these things your ideas? Well, the actually some of them are some of them aren't. The the really limited edition expensive ones, mm-hmm. I uh I had, didn't really have much to do with those and I don't think I'll do that again. That wasn't really my choice. That was something that uh, um Somebody approached the publisher, the big special edition ones, mm-hmm. um, where I do the Christmas books, or in this case, we just did the the uh, my book Lamb <laughs> it, in uh, it, with a leather cover and a red marker and all that stuff. It's to die for. Yeah. Well, here's here's the thing that happened is that book came out and it did okay um, in hardcover, and then it really took off by word of mouth over the years, and so people were always buying it for for uh, their relatives and their friends for Christmas and, and holidays. And they wouldn't be able to find a hardcover because there weren't that many printed. And they were getting extraordinarily expensive on, on eBay. They were like 500 bucks a piece around Christmas time because the book dealers knew they could, they could get that for it because it was like, it's Bob's favorite book. I have to get it for him, you know. And I would, and people, of course, would always write me and saying, "I do you have any?" And of course, I don't. I have garages full of the ones that you know nobody wants, but I, I don't have any of that one. And I really got tired of people not being able to give it as a present and paying this exorbitant amount of money for it if they did. And I thought, what I want is sort of a gift edition that people can give that they'll feel good about, and it doesn't cost you know two hundred, three hundred dollars. So. Um, for two years, I worked with my editor on this, trying to get this leather bible of edition of Lamb out. And we finally uh, um, got it printed in China. Um, so it might be kitty leather. I don't know what it's made out of. It could be, you know, puppy leather. Um, and, it's, and don't lick it, whatever you do, you know, because it's probably got lead paint in the, in the ink. But it looks really good. It's got the red ribbon and the gold pages. And everybody was able to get um, a copy for you know whatever relative they wanted to for Christmas. We sold twice as many of the leather-bound ones than the hardcover sold originally, just this last Christmas. Um, I wasn't concerned so much. I'm glad that that happened, but I'm more glad that people who wanted it um, were able to get it. And, and that wasn't something that's been happening over the years. So that was a kind of a terrific and a cool thing that happened. And the book actually jumped on the New York Times extended hardcover list five years after it was released just by people buying it for, you know, like my brother's a Episcopalian minister. This will piss him off, you know? So, uh, <laughs> well, it, it's interesting that it would be such a, a, a featured item at Christmas time when it's a book that you think might, 
people might be buying to burn at Christmas time. Well, that's never been the case with the book, and I wrote a new afterword for it, mm -hmm. talking about, you know, in the five years hence, everybody who writes to me thinks that the book, because it's a comic, we should say it's a comic retelling of the life of Christ from his, the point of view of his best friend Biff, who grew up with him, but who was written out of the Bible because he's a smartass. And... Um, and so everybody thinks that it's going to bring a, a lot of uh, protest and ire from fundamentalists and stuff. And the fact is, it just hasn't, you know. And even people who write and they say, I'm, you know, very strong of faith and I liked this book even though it was irreverent. Um, but uh, I'm sure other people aren't. And, and it was really, it was like people have faith, but not in each other. They all thought, well, everybody else is going to be a jerk, although I'm kind of cool with it because I actually read it. And that seemed to be the case is the only people, I, I've had maybe 20,000 letters about the book over five years, and uh, three of them have been negative. And two of them were from people who hadn't read the book, but the idea of it made them angry. And they were from Alabama and hadn't you know like I said hadn't read it but I, I thought it was interesting they were both from Alabama like a year apart and you know didn't reference one another but but I had two unsolicited hate letters and they both came from Alabama and then the third one was a retired Monsignor from um, Mont, uh, Montreal and he wanted to take me to task for my uh, uh, theology being wrong in the book and I was like dude, there's an abominable snowman in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, the design of the book was so great. When I first saw that, it just like shot me right back to my youth because my grandmother was a Christian scientist and mm -hmm. we had those kind of like leather Bibles. Uh, this was all your idea to do this as like a Bible? This is so, so yeah. cool. So yeah, cool. <laughs> it really is. And the, and the main thing was trying to get the price to where people would actually not, you know, where we didn't, we replaced one book that was way too expensive with another one that was way too expensive. So, you know, we could have done it right away if we wanted to pay, you know, ask $50 for the book. Mm -hmm. But trying to get the price below 20 bucks was... Yeah. Where and I have to say most of that work was done by my editor. I mean, I wasn't you know shopping printers in in Taiwan or anything, but she was, and um, uh, but it, but that was the thing that delayed it because I wanted to do this two years ago because I was running into so many people who wanted to give the book as a gift or had said mine's worn out, which is the greatest thing you, <laughs> an author can hear is mine's worn out and I bought five or six copies and people keep stealing them. So hopefully these nice looking gold leaf page uh, editions people won't steal, you know. Um, but uh, that one, you know, I think that's the first one, the first special edition that I've sort of overseen. And then there were there was a limited edition of You Suck that was done by a printer in New York that um, was just stupidly expensive. And it wasn't something, I, like I said, I won't do it again. I just, I don't want to do that to my readers. I know that there's a different segment of the population that thinks it's okay or they like you know paying 150 bucks for a book but mm, i'm um, one of those people yeah, yeah and um i it's just weird to me it just feels you know i i still when i send a book in you know i my agent says whatever you do don't don't say you're gonna pay me what um <laughs> so i i still think i'm still sort of amazed that i get paid to do this at all so when they start charging you know 200 bucks for one of my books i'm sort of I, just, I feel like I'm stealing from people is how is what I feel like and even though I'm not getting the money you know well, one of the things I think because you did a reissue of the of the stupidest angels mm -hmm. and when, when you do these kind of editions I think it's so you're turning your readers 
into kind of obsessive book collectors. And I think that's really good because it's <laughs> there. I mean, when you have people wearing out your books, that's a fundamental change in the way people read. I guess I guess it is. I think the I think part of it is that you know when you uh, when you find a funny book when that's and that's what I write are funny books you want to share that with someone else you know you want to when you hear a funny joke you want to tell them if you see a funny video on YouTube you want to send it to your friends you know the the old days where you'd send you know really you know bad joke uh, xeroxes or faxes to people you know but but I think that's always been the case and since my books are funny people want to share them and and so uh, you know there's no re- reason for me to get in their way for buying another copy and um the stupidest angel. The whole idea of it was we weren't going to be selling to new readers. We were going to be selling to people that already knew my stuff, and it was like a greatest hits book. Um, it has characters from like five of my novels in it. Has a Micronesian fruit bat in on the central coast of California because people requested it. And it was so it was a it was like me doing um, Total Request Live or something um, only in a novel form, and. Um, and then we did the next year. We did the Stupidest Angel version 2.0, which was my idea. And it was really I, I have to say, since I'll take credit for how cool the Bible edition of Lamb is, doing version 2.0 was stupid. It was a stupid idea. Everybody was like, "Well, I don't understand. What's the difference between this and 1.0? Do I have to download an upgrade? And what's it? You know, does it still work? And is it? And or people would be like, "This is the same book." And it's like, yeah, but it's 2.0 because um, <laughs> I put a, a bonus chapter in it. So that, you know, for every time I get it right, I get it wrong just as many times. Um, fortunately, people t- tend to, to give you the benefit of that. And they're like, oh, OK, his books made me laugh, even if he is a dick. So, um, <laughs> well, you, you know, you tour a lot, too. I do. And that's another way of you getting out there to connect with readers and turn reader reading into more of a, a social event, I think. And, and comedic books tend to do that as well. Like you say, people like to share a joke. I think so, too. I, I think that, um, I mean, I wish I was as good a reader as, say, uh, David Sedaris or, or Garrison Keillor. I tend to just go and, and free associate for 40 minutes and then ask people if they have any questions and then sign books. But um, I sort of have a fundamental belief that writing is communication, that all art is communication. Mm-hmm. And your sort of uh, level of commitment to a novel is a lot higher than, say, seeing a painting over someone's couch or even spending, you know, uh, an hour and a half watching a movie. Uh, you spend days with this person's work, with my work. And, and communication, I think, almost by definition, is two-way. And so for years, when when my publishers wouldn't tour me, um, I answered email. I had I was, the I think, the first non-technical writer to have his email address on a book. And um, that was Bloodsucking Fiends. It came out in 95. Sure, and it's an AOL.com address, which is a real red light for somebody who's non-technical. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was, <laughs> but in the, back in the day, it was CompuServe or AOL. I yeah. mean, that was, that or the prodigy. That was what the internet was. So everybody now thinks I'm this complete, you know, uh, Luddite. But the fact is, I've had that same address for... Uh, you know, twelve years now. It's admirable that you keep it too. You must be just be flooded with every form. It's a it's kind of a pain in the ass, but <laughs> but it's but people know where to find me. That's basically mm-hmm. it. And I have readers who have been writing me for twelve years, and that sort of became the virtual book tour for me. And how I was able to do you know like requests, you know, where people would say, "We want to see more <laughs> Roberto the Fruit Bat," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, okay, it's a Christmas book, but sure, I can put him in there." <laughs> um, and and it really. Uh, 
it, it let me connect with the people that I was producing the work for because I, I find in uh, I teach seminars occasionally and, and I, I have to keep reminding that the writers that it's not about them it's about their audience and it's about their readers and uh, if they don't communicate then it doesn't matter how important what they have to say is you know and uh, because people haven't gotten through it you haven't paid them back for the time and uh, you know which is why I'm I'm happy to write comedy I had a, a letter last night a young writer asking me does it bother me that no, that people won't take me seriously because I write comedy I'm like do you realize how many people I reach because I write comedy <laughs> that I wouldn't reach if I went, you know, uh, things are going really bad. <laughs> and he had Holocaust. That was bad, you know. Yeah. Um, so I told him he should write a Holocaust book and, you know, kill a kid. Because um, <laughs> that's, that's you know, serious. And, and, and yeah. you'll be taken seriously. And uh, seven people will read your book. Um but uh, well, that's not always the case. But but my my point being that uh, sort of reaching people and and communicating with them is uh, is serious enough for me, I guess. Uh, you're here at Capitol Book Cafe, and you have kind of a relationship with this bookstore and, and with other bookstores, don't you? I do. I do. Well, I've been touring here since my first book in 1992, and. Um, when you lived on in the West Coast version of Cabot Cove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived, I lived, I lived in Cambria. I can say that now because I don't live there anymore. When I lived there, I couldn't say that because people would find me. It's a small town. <laughs> you know, people go, "Do you know where yeah. the writer guy lives?" Oh, yeah. yeah, he's over there. They show up in my house, and they, you know, I'm all covered in suntan lotion and glitter and stuff. It was embarrassing. <laughs> so, <laughs> not always, but you know, it happened. And um, what was the question? Uh, it, relationships with bookstores. Right, right. Yeah, so I know like like Wendy who who now owns the Capitola Book Cafe. I think she was my events person 15 years ago when I first came here, you know. So um uh and and I I know people in bookstores all over the country and and uh sort of it's interesting because it's like I see them more often than I do my relatives, you know, even though I only <laughs> tour like once a year. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, my friends from the tattered cover and um so, so yeah, it's uh, again, it's it's those people are hand selling my books, you know, and and uh, I'm able to do this cool thing and make a living at it because they're out there going, you should read this thing about the you know giant sea monster who eats people on Prozac, you know, and uh, <laughs> that's a real book, by the way, folks. <laughs> and that's the, uh, the the lust lizard of melancholy Lush coast, lizard, yeah, yeah, which is set here on the central coast. We love the central coast locations. One of the things that's fun about your books is that you do write to, to recognizable locations, and, and even though you kind of transmogrify them yeah. a, a bit. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Pine Cove is the archetypical um, central coast town. It's not really a, any single town, but you can find the those elements, you know, the sort of hemp dressing, you know, neo-pagans are, are everywhere. And, the, you know, and of course, I talk about Santa Cruz in, in it, you know, saying that it's the only town where one of Baskin Robbins' 31 flavors is Thorazine. Um, <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, there's sort of, I think there's archetypes of of, uh, of Central Coast towns. And, you know, people always write me from Mendocino and say, oh, it's Mendocino is Pine Cove, right? And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> you know, or they'll write me from a little town in Oregon or even from the East Coast. And they're like, you just said it in California to fool people. So I think there must be some... Uh, 
uniform ex eccentricities to people who live in, in small towns in the coast. Well, we, we all love our beach towns. They, right. And there, there is a, a certain archetype to that, that kind of town, which you capture well, and it's a beautiful place to live. So I think that that's maybe part of your appeal. It, it could be. It could be. Although I've written now three books set in San Francisco, and I love the writing about the neighborhoods of San Francisco and the sort of clash clash of cultures. I, um, book before this one, uh, A Dirty Job, was set. The guy lived at the intersection between uh, North Beach, which is Italian, and Chinatown, which is, needless to say, China, Chinese and Russian Hill. And there is a spot like around Mason and Vallejo Street where you can stand and look at the, you know, you can see a sign for North Beach Garage and Russian Hill, you know, uh, medical clinic and the Chinese grocery. And it's it's sort of, you know, you're standing at the edge of the world looking at all these different countries. And it, and it's a great it was a, it's a great setting for uh, for a story to have these cultures. You know, I used to say I lived two blocks from a different country because I lived in North Beach and, you know, two blocks down Grant Street from Chinatown. And literally you could walk two blocks and no one spoke English and no one walked faster than like a half a mile an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are you working on a new book set in San Francisco? I am not. The book I'm working on now is set in um, in medieval England, sort of a tweaked <clears throat> medieval England. Oh, um, that sounds uh, entertaining. I think you were, you told me about this before. Yes, is, I've been working on it a long time, and it's got some Shakespearean themes in it and stuff. And and real medieval England didn't really work, um, so I've got my own medieval England that I've made up. I've sort of done revisionist history. So It's the pine cone of medieval England. Exactly. It's our typical, it's got big, cool 12th century castles, but just happens to have like 8th century paganism, you know, and, uh, you know, convenience. It's a Middle Ages of convenience, which is, I think, contradiction in terms. Well, we'll look forward to this forthcoming novel. We've been speaking with Christopher Moore here at Capitola Book Cafe. Thank you for joining me, Christopher. You're very welcome, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>